0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 51st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion about state violence, discrimination, and the challenges of humanitarian aid in COVID-19 with Vivian Choi and Malka Older. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear the COVID Calls recorded as podcasts on soundcloud.com. And thanks to the diligent work of my production assistant, Bucky Stanton, very soon all of the um, 50 previous episodes of COVID Calls will be available on um, iTunes and Stitcher and other podcasting platforms. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself to be a future guest. As of today, May 25th, 2020, there are 5,462,447 confirmed cases globally of COVID-19 according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 5,169,907 cases Friday. 1,653,904 of those are in the United States, up from 1,591,242 Friday. There are now a total of 97,948 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19 up from 95,533, reported on Friday. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story every day and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Lanika Barksdale, 47, a Detroit Ballroom Dancing Star is Dead. This was written by Jennifer Steinauer for the New York Times, April 16th. This is one of the many Obituaries that were published this weekend. If you didn't see the Times's um, digital feature that started on Saturday, it's well worth your time to read through. Even among the many lively cultural worlds of Detroit, the city's ballroom dancing scene is singular. Its style incorporates cha-cha steps, glides, and twirls to R&B and hip-hop music, and think Debbie Allen meets Shaka Khan. And expert Detroit ballroom dancers like Lanika Barksdale are royalty in Motown. Ms. Barksdale died on March 23rd in a Detroit hospital at 47. The cause was complications of the coronavirus, her brother Omari Barksdale said. She had long had severe asthma, an underlying condition that can make people who have it particularly vulnerable to the virus. Detroit has been an epicenter of the pandemic and several people in the city's ballroom scene are believed to have died from the virus. Ms. Barksdale, known as Nikki, was born in Detroit on May 22, 1972. She graduated from Berkeley High School outside the city and attended Henry Ford College, a community college in Dearborn, Michigan. She worked as a bartender for many years, most recently at the MGM Grand Detroit Hotel and was recently driving for Lyft. Anonymous, when behind a wheel by day, she was a popular virtuoso on the dance floor by night, known for her gliding. She had also mastered bop, stepping, hustles, and other difficult ballroom steps. My earliest memory is her dancing in the middle of the living room in my house, Mr. Barksdale, her younger brother said. She found her way as a young teenager onto a popular dance show on local cable called The Scene. It was very popular among black folks in Detroit, Mr. Barksdale said. All the local black owned businesses would advertise during that hour. Ballrooms, like Club Yesterday's, remained a constant in her life. In addition to her brother, she is survived by three sons, a daughter, and her parents. I'd like to turn to our conversation for today and introduce my guests. Vivian Choi is Assistant Professor of Anthropology and Sociology at St. Olaf College. She is also affiliate faculty in Race and Ethnic Studies, and Environmental Studies. Her research focuses on the political, environmental, and technological dimensions of disasters. Her current book project is titled Disaster Nationalism, Tsunami and Civil War in Sri Lanka, and examines the intersections of the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami and the decades long civil war, which ended in 2009 in Sri Lanka. She is currently developing a new project on climate change and sea surface warming, a slow moving disaster in the Indian Ocean. And among her works is an article I particularly like and recommend, titled Anticipatory States, Tsunami, War, and Insecurity in Sri Lanka, published in the journal Cultural Anthropology. Malka Older is a writer, aid worker, and academic. Named Senior Fellow for Technology and Risk at the Carnegie Council for Ethics in International Affairs for 2015, she has more than a decade of experience in humanitarian aid and development. Her research interests include intergovernmental relations and crises, the paradox of well-funded disaster responses, measurement and evaluation of disaster response, and the effects of competition among actors in humanitarian aid. And she publishes in these areas in academic journals as well as in more popular venues. And she is also a fiction writer. Her science fiction, political thriller, Infomocracy, was named one of the best books of 2016 by Kirkus, Book Riot, and the Washington Post. She's also the author of the sequels, Null States and State Tectonics. Her short story and poetry collection and other disasters came out in 2019. Malka and Vivian, thank you for coming on COVID Calls today. Thanks
1: for having us. Thanks, Scott.
0: I like to remind people that you can get questions in using YouTube Live. Just put your questions in the chat or you can use Twitter. Some people like to do that. Just put your question up and be sure to tag me at US of Disaster. And some people like to email the questions and I appreciate that as well. You can email me questions in the conversation, just send them to sgk23 at drexel.edu. So I like to start the way I usually do by asking how everyone is doing and where they're calling from. So Vivian, could I start with you? Uh, where are you calling in from and, and what's the situation there
1: today? Uh, I'm calling in from Brooklyn, New York, uh, which is not where I normally live. I Uh, teach at St. Olaf, which is just south of the Twin Cities in Minnesota. So my normal habitation is in Minneapolis. And I am here in Brooklyn, uh, helping my family with some COVID-related illnesses.
0: Well, maybe we'll get a chance to talk a little bit more about that during our our conversation. Uh, What's it like on the streets of Brooklyn this Memorial Day?
1: Uh, Took a dog for a walk this morning. Pretty quiet, actually. Really? Um, I'm wondering if people all went to the beaches or something, possibly, um, but yeah, I think I think um, people are coming outside more, including myself, so, yeah.
0: Malka, how about you? Where are you calling from, and how are things there?
2: I'm in The Hague, in the Netherlands, and... Honestly, from my window, it looks pretty normal here. We're, we're very much on the downswing. So the numbers, particularly over the weekend, it was a long weekend here, although on the other end of the weekend, um, which does mean some delays in reporting potentially. But um, there were some single digit numbers over the weekend in terms of both hospitalizations and deaths, as well as a couple of low two digits. And that's for the country, not for the city. Um so we're definitely on the downswing, but they're, they started loosening restrictions um, pretty broadly uh, two weeks ago. And so we'll, we'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks.
0: The Hague must be such a, a fascinating place to live anyway. But during the middle of this pandemic with people from all over the world, literally, um, has there been some special protocols because of the, the nature of the population there and the uh, so many people involved in policy work?
2: Not not really. I think what, what you do see when there are people um, from a lot of different places and what I've noticed mostly through the sort of expat Facebook groups that I follow is people have very different ideas about what's going on. And I think that there is this sort of disjunction that you get Um, I call it Corona lag, when the online communities that you are most present with are in a different place in the swing or in their consciousness or in the way it's being reported than the place that you are physically. Mm -hmm. And there is this really (laughs) serious cognitive dissonance in terms of what you expect to be happening based on what people are saying to you when you're interacting with them virtually and what you see physically.
0: Corona lag. That's tremendous. I hadn't heard that yet. What a useful concept. So you, you both uh, work on you both work on a lot of different things, but I'd like to start by talking about um, the serious issues that we're seeing about discrimination and state violence within state borders right now. And Vivian, can I start with you? I mean this is what you're writing a book about. What are you seeing right now uh, in, in that general area? Either in the United States or in other countries where there are minority populations that are facing oppression right now, related to the pandemic.
1: Yeah, so um, I think a lot of people who study disasters and write about disasters recognize that um, when something happens, uh, it disasters present many different opportunities, you know, for collaboration and also for political power and other forms of. Um, as you pointed out, discrimination or oppression. And so um, my research in Sri Lanka looks at that process after the tsunami um, and disaster reconstruction in in the context of a civil war. And so um, I am particularly uh, interested in ways in which um, states can kind of seize these moments of disaster to implement certain kinds of, Policies that may appear to be um, in the interest, say, of national security, um, at, while at the same time having kind um, having effects on um, on certain uh, marginalized or um, minority populations. So, um, I've been paying attention to things that are obviously happening here in the states. Um, there have been a lot of reports about what's happening with the borders, right? So uh, most recently um, banning people who are coming from Brazil, um, but just the securitization of borders. And um, in particular, the way that that has been, one, used in terms of the rhetoric coming out of the, the White House as this was a very important move that was made early on right, to prevent people from coming into the country. Um, and then, and what that has kind of, um, how that has kind of unfolded then in terms of um, people who are seeking asylum, refugees, and even um, people, uh, immigrants who um, are, are currently incarcerated as well um so there's that and then in the sri lankan context um there has been kind of a growing anti-muslim sentiment in sri lanka and um most recently with a pandemic it has also elicited fomented uh more anti-muslim sentiment whether that's uh from actual pretty um (laughs) Uh, inflammatory statements made by higher up officials, but also, you know, um, there was a report that was released um, that was trying to uh, spell out an exit strategy in terms of the the how to manage the pandemic and as one of the kind of essential data points for you know garnering information in each kind of divisional secretariat, they had actually listed Muslim population. As, as one of the essential data points to mm. kind of gather. And that has since, that caused an uproar and it has since been, if you look at the document now, it is that that point is no longer there. Mm. Um, but, you know, and then there's just been a lot of kind of public um, blaming of, you know, this is where the virus has started with Muslim communities and um, yeah, and, and a similar, uh, things can be seen in, in India as well with the Hindu nationalists and the BJP. So, yeah, those are, that's Mal- kind of what I've been seeing.
0: Malka, same question to you. I mean, either in historical cases and places you've worked where you've seen this sort of play out, where there are uh, minority populations that then become the subject of extra scrutiny, or other cases you're paying attention to, particularly right now.
2: Um, yeah, uh, what I've I've done a little bit more work and research on um, is the ways that disasters affect communities, right? And as you mentioned, sometimes we see disasters really pull communities together, and sometimes we see them tear them apart. And so there's a, a fairly um, robust strand of literature on um, how this works, particularly uh, dividing between so-called natural disasters. So think a hurricane. And technological disasters. Um, so, natural disasters tend to pull communities together. It's something that's happened to everybody and they just try to survive it. Uh, particularly, this is true when they're pretty quick. And then, technological disasters, um, for a number of reasons, uh, tend to have the opposite effect. They tend to be corrosive on communities. Um, now, what I've done a little bit of work on is looking at how it's not just the technological aspect of the disaster, but the the sort of symptoms, the reasons that make these technological disasters so corrosive can be applied also to different types of disasters that are not the sort of rapid onset, quote unquote, natural that we think of so easily, and even can be applied to the responses um, to disasters. So the the main things that can can drive communities apart in terms of a disaster are uncertainty, Mm Uh, particularly uncertainty as to long-term effects and uncertainty as to blame. Um, and then often when large interests get involved, uh, that can sort of compound that. And then this this uncertainty causes divisions in, in the community um, and can threaten people's understanding of the underlying order. Um, which then makes people more uncertain and more upset. So we can really see how, even though this is a natural disaster to some extent, although it is obviously accelerated by our technologies and our ways of living, it has all these qualities in spades. It is in a way a perfect storm of the kind of disaster that will, will pull communities apart. You know, It's very uncertain what's going on. It's uncertain what will happen. Uh, the individual effects over time are uncertain. There's all sorts of different narratives around blame for how it's spreading. Um, In addition, because it's happening at at a staggered pace, but somewhat simultaneously globally, that means that people are seeing different types of responses in different places. And it's very easy for people to be angry and dissatisfied about what's going on in their particular place. Um, And, you know, and we're seeing a lot of hard questions that don't necessarily have one right answer, meaning that. It's easy for communities to split across even valid opinions before you even get to the stage of disinformation um, and so on. And so this is, as we are seeing, uh, I think, everywhere and daily in in new and interesting and horrible ways. Uh, a, a very difficult type of disaster for communities to um, to survive without this, these kinds of disputes. And you know, as we know, when there are these fragmentations and and disputes within communities, it's very easy to turn to those who look like the outsiders or the most recent or the most different and and try to um, pin everything on them.
0: So this um, transition, I think is a very interesting one. You're just you're describing from uncertainty and then, but you said there's sort of like di- also disinformation. Can you mm-hmm. say a little bit more about how you distinguish between those two, because in this, in this time in the United States, for example, I sometimes have trouble figuring out the difference between those two.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's not, you know, I think that really disinformation feeds on uncertainty, right? Um, Disinformation comes out when we're talking about information or facts or, um, you know, whatever we're trying to get a grasp on is something that's very hard for an individual to see themselves. So, you know, there's a lot of disinformation that goes around um, votes, right? We can't individually count all the votes that are there. We can't individually uh, know what the unemployment statistics are. Even those people who are in the office, they're using statistical techniques to approach it. We can't individually see the virus. Even the people who are the experts on the virus at this moment don't understand it fully or even close to fully. And, and it's something that is not unique to this for me it's very reminiscent of uh, when I was working in Japan after the, the tsunami and the Fukushima disaster there I was trying to find out as much as I could about radiation before I went and uh, nobody knew enough to have an answer um, about the, the kind of low-level radiation that was that was being released from Fukushima Daiichi at the time mm-hmm. and we're I think we're very uncomfortable in our modern technological worlds with things that don't have an answer from anyone. Um, so uncertainty is, is really problematic and really opens the door for people to start taking advantage and spreading disinformation about it. And so there is, you know, there is a line there. It's, it's very easy in this uncertain area for people to simply make mistakes. But there are also a lot of actors out there who are very, very practiced right. at using disinformation intentionally and for, for their own reasons. And, and those are distinct.
0: I had Joan Donovan on here a couple of weeks ago uh, from the Kennedy School at Harvard, and she was talking about this exact issue that there's always. Um, it, she talked about uh, hate groups, white supremacist groups, who see these moments as perfect to sow discord. But I mean, the topic of what we're talking about today is also that it may very well be ruling parties in a, in a particular state that also uh, is looking for a moment of uncertainty to drive a particular to drive a particular agenda forward. Uh, I want to. I wanna, one of the reasons I was excited to have both of you on today is that you're both just great writers. And um, Vivian, I'm going to actually, I want to read just a little bit from your article, Anticipatory States, just a little bit, because um, I want you to, I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the Sri Lanka case and particularly this notion of anticipation. When you wrote in, you wrote in this article that after the 2004 tsunami, experiences and sentiments Uh, What you call anticipatory states speak to the reaches and limits of the government's anticipatory measures. Anticipation is not only evidenced by the ways in which people are prepared bags and ID cards safely packed with a change of clothes. Security articulates differently when considering how people rely on their neighbors the sound of the ocean, the color of the sky, the tug of memory, the blackness of the rising ocean tide, past warning failures, and hasty evacuations from danger the conditions that shape how people are attuned to the future and the past. Sri Lankans know very well the fragility of peace. I mean, first of all, it's so beautifully written, but also you're really trying to get there at, at the problem of the memory of violence and the way that people have to balance that while they're also trying to do their due diligence just to prepare, as Malka said, for a natural disaster that might come that seemingly is apolitical, but will always be filtered through this political past. Can you, I I don't like put you on the spot here, like to like interpret your entire argument of your article in your book, but could you say a little bit more about this idea of anticipation and particularly how it, how it works with memory and communities?
1: Sure, Um, so anticipation was, um, I liked it because it evokes a lot of different um, feelings and also is actually, an uh, attunement to the future that is um, used by a lot of disaster risk management practitioners, including the Sri Lankan state. So um, this notion of kind of always being ready as part of this, um, is, is part of the kind of uh, motivation and sort of purview of, 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 of being prepared right, for a disaster. So one of the things that was very clear after the tsunami in Sri Lanka was that, I mean, people did not even know what a tsunami was. It was not even in the realm of disaster possibility. So um, mm-hmm. so I was sort of kind of thinking about, well, there's the ways in which the government or the state, it rolls out these um, national disaster warning infrastructures in anticipation of another disaster um, and and the beginning of that article is um i'm participating in a, an evacuation drill in which um we're way there so along the coastline um, sri lanka built these tsunami warning towers all along the the, the southern and eastern and northeastern coastlines um, and so there was an evacuation drill happening and we're waiting for the siren to go off and it doesn't go off. Um, And in some ways that was really emblematic of the Sri Lankan state. And and part of that is because in the area where I was doing research, which was the Eastern coast of Sri Lanka, which was the most badly affected by the tsunami, um, also happened to be an area that was also very um, badly affected by civil war long histories of, 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 war-related violence, both, um, you know, perpetrated by the Sri Lankan state and the Liberation Tigers of Eelam, the militant um, insurgent group. Um, and so, you know, I was really trying to get at, you know, in some ways people kind of already had these ways of recognizing danger in which they didn't have to rely on the government because the government had long kind of, not had not been reliable. And so, you know, having this warning tower fail was just this kind of other moment, right, in which that was really um really uh you know really apparent. And so um yeah one of the things that I kind of got a sense of just doing field work is you know the ways in which people kind of talk about the weather and how they say the sky was this particular way of the day of the tsunami. Um, or that, you know, they have other modes of communicating with their families and neighbors um, to get information um, that they feel like that they can trust. And so and and in, so in some ways, this history of war-related violence kind of gave people already an uh, anticipatory mode of, of living. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was really trying to tease out the differences between these different modes of anticipation. In that case. Do,
0: you, do you think that it's, I'm asking you to speculate here, I guess, but I mean, do you, do you think that's the way people in the United States and in many communities are gonna feel after this is over? When they realize they had to rely on things other than the executive branch, for example, to give them the kind of warnings we might've been expecting in a pandemic? Um
1: yeah i mean so um i mean in other disaster communities like people who are accustomed to hurricanes for example there's a way in which people kind of all also have the kind of uh, a knowledge right of of how to be ready um and in this instance i mean to get back to the question of information or disinformation or who can you trust with information um and then what is done with it, right? I think that certainly people, I mean, yeah, I, I think, I don't know, um, that people will have to kind of try to make sense of what's happening or the information that they've been given on their own. Um, and and in, in a way, that's kind of how it's been, I think, presented to at least the public in the United States, which is that, you know, it's, it's your responsibility to do, to, Mm -hmm. to wash your hands, put your mask on, um, and be a good citizen. Um, And so, um, yeah, so I, you know, whether, you know, what people decide to do with that responsibility is a a different question. Mm.
0: Sticking with this, this issue of sort of anticipation and learning, um, Malka, I wanted to Plug an article that you wrote in and read just a couple lines from it and this came out in foreign policy in April, I'm just going to read a couple lines from it You said our reluctance to believe in disasters is worsened by the way we treat each one After the fact as the only disaster government reports and media accounts alike are studded with words like unprecedented and unimaginable We've heard that a lot, right? Um, Those reports supposedly have the purpose of learning from mistakes and more rarely successes to ensure that future disasters are handled more effectively. But like simulation exercises and probabilities, those carefully documented lessons are rarely given the funding or political attention to be put into practice. What was your goal in writing that article and bringing up these issues of the, the problems in policymaking of learning from disaster?
2: Well, I'd really like to see disaster being taken in a, much more seriously and in a very different way in policymaking. Um, I so I come from a background of working in international humanitarian response, um, which is uh, an industry that has a lot of problems, but also does have what I think is is mostly a virtue, <laughs> not not always, but mostly a virtue of really trying to professionalize disaster response and think about it as as an industry and as a profession and as something that you can work towards having certain standards and um, certainly work towards improving as you go. And um, when I started doing my my dissertation research, which was on the tsunami in Japan and also on Hurricane Katrina in the United States, I was really shocked at the 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 little which that attitude in which the different um, mechanisms and tools developed in the international community have permeated into the disaster response of even, you know, very wealthy countries like the United States and Japan um, that do spend quite a lot of money on disaster response and put agencies in charge of it, but are much less likely to have well, they don't have any kind of um, standards that go from disaster to disaster. Uh, mm-hmm. Any kind of standards in terms of how they do evaluations. Um, so yeah, I was I was really quite shocked um, by this, and and I think it is really a disservice, particularly this theme of the unprecedented disaster, um, which <laughs> <I> infuriating. <find intimidating. laughs> um, and it's true that it's it is a seductive sort of. Um, description because for um, all of us this feels unprecedented and when you're in a disaster it has that quality of unreality and a feeling totally divorced from anything that's happened before and that's very powerful and and it needs to be recognized because for the individuals it's it's usually true Um, but at the same time we know you know we know that Hurricane Katrina was not the first hurricane ever to hit the gulf coast We know that the tsunami in the northeast of Japan was not the first tsunami. And we know this is not the first pandemic. Um, It's not even the first recent threat of a pandemic. I mean, we're talking about the past 20 years. There have been quite a number of indications that this was a a serious possibility. Um, And, of course, people are are looking back at previous pandemics that have been, you know, really incredibly serious events. Um, And so as much as we need to recognize our feelings that this is something extraordinary, uh, which it is, to, to talk about it as an event that is unimaginable and unprecedented is is really doing a disservice both to to what we can potentially learn from it and the ways we can be preparing for future events and to those people who have been working on these things for a long time.
0: Yeah, when, when those terms are used, uh they're very irritating to historians <laughs> i mean a lot of things are irritating to historians to be fair but but um, that usually they could say unprecedented but they never say undocumented because they are documented it's just that maybe the awareness of those documents uh, makes it seem as if they're unprecedented but i think it's really it's really important to make that that distinction too of the span over which people do learn? Do they see these disasters as national events and do they imagine them as sort of decade by decade? And the way a lot of disaster information, a lot of disaster data is reported is year by year. It's seasonal, Mm -hmm. it's year by year. It's generated, a lot of it is generated by reinsurance companies that take, you know, particular slivers of time as the benchmarks. And so it may be unprecedented through certain eyes of certain states but we would hope that we would have global minded agencies that could take much much longer views um, Vivian did you want to did you want to comment on that point
1: well I was just gonna say just based on what your your comment is that some of it has to do with the um, what gets sort of recognized as the disaster as well so as Malco was saying earlier you know things aren't just a natural disaster right so I mean, and this is something I'm trying to look at in my own research, but how, and, and something that we can see very clearly with this pandemic is that, you know, yes, it's the virus. And yet, is it, you know, the lack of a, a robust like public health infrastructure? You know, what is, what counts as, right. or what is considered as the disaster as it unfolds, or even, you know, the, the context leading up to it, right? And so... I think, like you know, memories are short. I guess, and if we're thinking about something like Hurricane Katrina, where some people would argue that the recovery was a like success, right? Um, and so, um, you know, never mind the sort of the, the really difficult reconstruction process for obviously um, different populations of people who were impacted um, in in um, in more uh, in more difficult and extreme ways. Right. And so, mm-hmm. um, I think, I think that definitely has something to do with
0: it. Malka, you have been, um, researching humanitarian aid, and we tend to think of that as, well, I'll speak for myself. I tend to think of that as uh, disaster occurs in a country in the global South, global North, Agencies or international agencies constructed of global north capital go into those places and rebuild them to some standard. And that's those are stories um, that we can all picture. We've read a lot of those stories. We may have some of us even volunteered with those organizations or worked with them at various times or another. Um, How is this pandemic potentially rewriting that narrative, or what are you seeing right now? in the humanitarian aid world that's being challenged by the pandemic?
2: Um, I'm I'm actually really interested to see how this unfolds. Um, Obviously for the international aid world, it's very problematic financially um, for a lot of the same reasons as it is for everyone else. But beyond that, um, and there's, there's also similar adjustments being made in how you work with social distancing. Um, but beyond that, you know, I think that there is kind of an emerging story here about how this is changing the way people see crisis and the way people see international assistance. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know how much it will happen because I think it's very, people are very resistant to writing themselves into that narrative and the receiving side, um, which says really a lot about the way we think about assistance, um, as a, (laughs) And, and the way we think about giving and the hierarchy that, that we're putting onto that. Um, and there's been some really interesting research, um, particularly on people in the United States in terms of how they connect welfare uh, to disaster assistance and the ways that that makes people very resistant to receiving um, funds. Yeah, there's some great pieces I can hmm. share with you. Um, but, you know, I think that seeing a global crisis will have hopefully some effect on on how people think about crisis and how people think about response. And I think there's also some really interesting stories emerging about the different ways that the developed world, for lack of a better term, and that less wealthy nations are dealing with this. And we're seeing some really interesting success stories uh, from countries that you wouldn't have picked as a place that you would want to be during an international health crisis. Um, And I think hopefully that will also get us thinking a little bit more about uh, what exactly the advantages and disadvantages are that we have and what we can learn in different directions than we like to think the teaching and learning goes. Um, I'm particularly interested right now in the sort of ideas of, you know, who thinks technology can save them, who thinks that it's only a matter of finding the right technological fix, who besides Elon Musk, I mean and then we're all set, as opposed to the countries that are more ready to to work hard on human behavioral change.
0: Hmm. So there's this, um, I have some discomfort at times when I read the resilience literature and it seems to want to find some kind of almost essentialist characteristic of uh, people in poor countries they are used to living um, with disaster and therefore we should look at them as being resilient. I don't think, and I'm not, none of us are endorsing that point of view. At the, at the same time, what you're just, just describing to me is really provocative, because it indicates that you know, the wealthiest country in the world, the United States, with all of the techno-fix that could be imagined, has let this get badly out of hand. Um, and, and
2: other understand. countries
0: that are not as rich as the United States have been, as you said, quick to adopt very aggressive measures, mm-hmm. many of them very pro-social, like asking society to rally in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've seen much greater effects.
2: And it's not unique. I mean, I think, I mean, Katrina, but much more recently, Hurricane Maria, um, well, pretty much any natural disaster, so-called natural, again, natural hazard triggered disaster that we look at in the past, I don't know, decade, two decades in the United States, you know, we, we, we keep being surprised that we're not able to handle these things better. And the fact is that we are not as much as we would like to think we are in a position to control nature. <laughs> we are not capable of dealing with everything that nature can throw at us. And to think that we are means being again, continually surprised that these things turn into such large disasters. Um, again, to return to the sort of the evaluations uh, that I see coming out of governments out of these things, the constant, the constant on all of these evaluations is if only our communications had worked, we would have done so much better which, you know, from someone who worked in humanitarian aid in places like Darfur and Sri Lanka, just the communications are never going to work. That's not the problem. Um, And, you know, I think that, again, not to say anything essentialist, and certainly I don't want to throw anything on as an extra burden on countries that don't have much. I think all countries would like to have more um, technology and wealth to deal with the, the effects of this. Um, but to expect that technology and wealth are all that you need is creating a larger problem.
0: I think that's extremely well said. I, I'm, it sticks in my head, the Elon Musk tweet. I, I shouldn't cop to the fact that I read Elon, Elon Musk <laughs> tweets, but um, he tweeted, he said something about, you know, if the, if we need ventilators, there shall be ventilators. We will make ventilators. Missing the point that if you get to the point where you need ventilators, You've, there's a problem. It was a really bad problem at the individual level and at the collective level. So I want to remind people you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm having a discussion today with Vivian Choi and Malka Older. And Vivian, I'd like to come back to you and, um, Since you said it was okay, maybe we could talk a little bit about what you've been coping with here these last couple of months, and I appreciate you making time even to come on for this discussion. What have you been dealing with?
1: Yeah, so um, as I mentioned early on, uh, I normally live in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and um, my sister and my nephew live in Brooklyn, New York, and that's where I am right now, and Um, And my mother who happened who lives in Portland, Oregon was was visiting my sister here to see her grandson and all of that Um, uh, Came in early February before things got as bad as they did and um, And you know, we had considered, you know, sending her back to Portland, but felt that as, uh, as someone in that with several high risk kind of categories that it was probably better to kind of just stay in one place. Um, And then basically um, and and sort of luckily uh, I was on spring break from teaching. So uh, my sister kind of started to get sick Um, and, um, and when, and and so she kind of isolated herself um, and then my mom was taken care of my 18 month old nephew who also has some medically is medically complex as well. And, you know, um, you know, that became a bit too much. So I decided to drive out from Minneapolis to Brooklyn, um, uh, to, to basically, cause we were worried then about my immunocompromised nephew to also then for me to take care of him and actually stay at a friend of ours apartments. And so, um, basically in the kind of two days that it took me to get from Minneapolis to Brooklyn, um, which that was a kind of, um, surreal and horrific journey in itself, um, uh, is that my sister got very quickly, uh, worse. Um, and so by the time I got to, uh, Brooklyn, she had to, uh, I, I, immediately got here and took her to the hospital. And, and then, um, so then I, t- and, you know, we thought that my mom was still okay and that she could just kind of rest. And I took my nephew to our friend's place. And then a few days later, um, my mother, uh, you know, she also got sick and also had to, uh, she also ended up going to the hospital. Um, so it was, uh, and um, I'm, I'm happy. So the end of the story I'm happy to say is that both are out of the hospital um, and both are recovering um, but it was you know kind of coming to New York as and kind of as it was peaking and then being here during that time um, and also experiencing the the healthcare process um um, in, in that, in that context as well was, um, was, was really, um, yeah, it was, I, I, I'm not sure what words I can put to it, but, um, you know, it was incredible to see, I mean, speaking of uncertainty that, um, you know, my sister had, you know, the, the person who had no underlying pre-existing conditions was, my sister was the one who got quite, quite sick. Um, and, you know, we were pretty much prepared to put her on a ventilator. Um, and, you know, just kind of seeing that process where, you know, doctors were trying like, you know, first like, right, azithromycin, then um, the antimalarials, and then, you know, the anti-inflammatories, um, like anti, the rheumatoid arthritis treatments, and then, you know, it's you know, and how they were trying each of these things that weren't working. Right? Um, and, and then seeing that. And then, so what ended up happening is that my sister got sort of better and then she got actually a lot worse, um, which is something that they've been uh, seeing happen with, with patients. And um, they suspected that maybe she had uh, a blood clot. Mm-hmm. And, um, but my sister was not strong enough to get, uh, get taken to get a CT scan, um, and so they just treated her as if she had a blood clot. And and when she was, and she kind of once they started treating that, she did start getting better. And once she was strong enough, she had that CT scan, and what they saw was that she had so many blood clots that they they couldn't even count them all. And and what and so this was like over a month ago that they were they discovered this. So based on what the doctors had seen with my sister, they just decided that they would just treat very seriously ill COVID patients um, who were presenting similar symptoms as if they had blood clots. Right. And then, you know, a a couple of weeks later, there were articles that were coming out right in in the Washington post that, you know, that, yes, blood clots were a thing that they were now recognizing as something that came out of, or, you know, as a, as a as one of the, I guess, effects of the disease. And the interesting, other interesting part of it was that my sister told me that the doctors had said that in Wuhan, the doctors were taking CT scans of, of COVID patients, but they had not been giving their patients the contrast that would have revealed blood clots. So it, it's, they weren't, they just weren't looking for them, right? So that's why they didn't observe that that was actually something that happened. happen. So just kind of witnessing kind of in person the, um, you know, how, how the medical system is really trying to deal with this and, um, and how quickly also they have to have to do it. Um, and so, you know, they told my sister, they're like, well, you know, honestly, we don't know if if it was your body that just was finally kicking, you know, responding, and you were getting better just on your own, or if it was all this this mm-hmm. of medications that we gave you too, so I mean, just the kind of um, just kind of seeing all of that happening um, was um, was just was wild, um, and. And I, and luckily, my mother, who had who has had chronic lung disease for much of her life, ended up having a very mild case. Hmm. So, I was luckily only in the hospital for five or six days. So,
0: well, thank you for <laughs> sharing that. They're, yeah. they're so lucky that you were yeah. able to come. It's yeah. I mean, what a what a story, and and what you've described is like living through the uh, medical learning curve. It's not something we're used to. I mean, we have to remember this is novel coronavirus. And so it's why it's particularly you know, when they say, oh, it's just a bad flu. That's it, such a mischaracterization of what we're dealing with here. Just as you just described, one of the best hospitals in the world. And they're literally learning as they're, as they're going.
1: And, you know, I have to say, like, we're very, very lucky. Um, and, uh, our family is... You know, we're so grateful. One for the care that we got, and uh, but also that you know the the my sister's pulmonologist, thinks that, um, and this this is not usual of all, or this is not. She cannot say this of all COVID patients, is that she will. Op- she's very optimistic that my sister will make, won't have long term or permanent lung damage. But many COVID patients who recover well. Um, and you know what's crazy is that amidst all of this, you know my sister was worried about whether or not this hospital was in network <laughs> right um, and and you know when you get taken to the hospital, you, you don't get to choose which hospital you go to they when you get picked up by an ambulance, you know they just take you to the closest one and you know this this concern about like uh you know am I going to be able to pay this you know, she was in the hospital for weeks, It's massive you know, hospital, bomb, right? all, all the while, right? Um,
0: the added element of that stress is, is, is tremendous and something people haven't really, really haven't talked about enough yet, I don't think, as a society. Um, Malka, I want to, um, well, thanks again, Vivian, for sharing that. I, Malka, you're a person who not only do you write analytically about disasters, but you also write creatively, not only about disasters when you're a writer, but, um, I, could you say a little bit about um, how writing, how fiction helps us cope with stress and trauma? Uh,
2: sure. And, and first, Vivian, I'm so glad they're doing better. <laughs> um, yeah, I, Actually, I mean, personally, right now I, am, I had a couple of you know, weeks at the beginning where it was really hard for me to be productive, and now I'm actually being really fairly productive on my fiction because I find it so helpful to be in a different world mm. for a while, <laughs> and, um, and I read a lot of fiction, which does that, but I'm actually finding writing fiction really helpful because it takes such a sustained concentration to, to create that other world, Um, So that's the kind of personal writing angle, which is obviously different for everyone. And I'm not suggesting everyone should take up fiction writing right now, unless you've always wanted to and you're (laughs) bored, (laughs) in which case go for it. Um, And if you are, Nano Remo is sending out prompts for stay at home NaNo. Um, If you're not familiar, that's national novel writing month. It's an online community and um, that could be helpful if that's something you want to do. But I do think that more generally uh, fiction is, is really helpful for us Um, in so many ways. And I think in, in different ways for different people, depending on how they process it and what kind of fiction they like. But, you know, for some people it's, you know, you need to be reading hope punk right now and you need to be reading stuff that's hopeful and comforting and fuzzy. And, and, and that's me, no shame in wanting fuzzy stuff to read right now. Um, but I know other people who are most into reading grimdark and gory stuff and dystopian fiction. And I don't know if it's the contrast that it feels like that's even worse, or if there's something about it, just, just being somewhere else that's bad. Um, but whatever it is, you know, first of all, there's, I mean, escapism is a perfectly legitimate and often really important thing to do. And just getting your head somewhere else for a while is a great de-stress technique. Um, beyond that I think that that fiction there's been there have been studies showing that fiction can help build empathy also there's suggestions that fiction um, and I suggest this myself but I've also read in places there's suggestions that fiction can be can sort of plug into the part of our brain that imagines the future in ways that help us decide what to do and so reading fiction is is one way of sort of Having more experiences, which is a way to have more, um, more of a body of knowledge on which to base your decision making. Um, it's a way to play out different scenarios so that you can feel like you're trying different things um, and think through. You know, oh, if I were in that situation, what would I do? And and that's that's just a very a very helpful thing, I think, um, both at times like these and, and more generally in terms of uh, building a kind of resilience.
0: I've been asked um in these last months you know as a historian you know for cases historical analogies you know 1918 flu or various other times and and of course i often read history the way you're describing reading fiction
2: mm-hmm. yeah
0: awesome. and what i found unsatisfying personally and so i've been reading i've also been reading fiction about pandemics like camus and others but i read i reread um Daniel Defoe's journal, The Plague Year, which he wrote about the uh, London Plague in 1666. And uh, what I found unsatisfying was trying to come up with like a list of like, well, here are actionable items I take from, from the history. And I think that's generally when people ask historians those kind of questions, that's what they they want and legitimate to ask those questions. And we try to answer as best we can. But what I found much more useful was those histories as reservoir of human emotion to to see how people had felt bad in the past and, and the way they describe it and, and the, the care with which like Defoe describes fear in London in 1666, um, really useful, just really helpful to me in, in that regard.
2: And yeah, I think, I mean, you asked about fiction, but I would say really narrative,
0: Mm. More broadly, mm-hmm.
1: and, you know, what are you like, reading, Vivian? And
2: I I, I, I really haven't
1: had much time. Yeah, to read really. I know. I
0: know. Um <laughs> tweets.
1: <but> I will <laughs> say, you know, um, as an ethnographer who also is yeah. very much That's what I um, to ask you about. Driven yeah. by, you know, stories and narratives, and also that fiction is also incredibly important to me too, in in terms of. You know, each ethnographer is a story writer too. Um, and, you know, um, even thinking, I mean, I'm trying to figure out, right, right now, like how this pandemic actually is either going to be the prologue or the epilogue to my book, right? Like, um, because there is so much even that I'm learning in my own experience, right? That um, is, I see it through the lens of my research and also the other, the other way too is helping me think through um, these questions that I've had about um, disasters.
0: And Last week on on Friday, I had, um, we talked about breathing and I had Javi Carroll and James Dodd from the Life of Breath Project at Bristol and uh, University of Bristol. And they were talking about sort of narrative techniques in medicine mm-hmm. and even sort of like listening to people talk about breathing and the fears that they have around breathing um, and trying to tease out the differences between Maybe somebody had had an exercise-induced asthma attack, for example, which is a real thing, but can be medically addressed, but can lead to fear for future exercise. And so just listening to the way, and and that might be quite different from listening to somebody who's talking about having COPD or COVID-19, these narrative medical techniques, also incredibly important, um, not as escape, but as practice. it seems like we should be paying a lot more attention to the descriptions people give of their own feelings, how they order events in this time, the details they choose to focus and the ones that that get left out. I was, I mean, even the way you were describing the what you've been through in these last two months, Vivian, I don't know if you told it all the way through like that before, but you tell it very well. I mean, you tell it very concisely. I don't think I could tell it that well.
1: I have, I have told it and written it um, for several different reasons um, uh, many times at this point. Um, and there are other things that I can elaborate on um, if there's time or if people have questions. But um, yeah, I mean, and I think that, you know, I, I think you had mentioned... Uh, in an earlier conversation, you know, what does this mean in terms of doing research? Um, how, how has the pandemic kind of maybe challenged um, social science research, which is, um, you know, one of the things that I was taught as uh, as an anthropologist is that one of the reasons why we spend so much time in the field is that, you know, the, the story that I gave, right, it's the one that I've kind of recited a few times, right? And then the goal is to actually get someone to say something that they, beyond what they have kind of, you know, recited as kind of their story. Right? And, and I think the challenge with kind of this, this um, pandemic, which has been so moving so quickly is how to kind of keep up with, um, you know, so, you know, ethnography as a kind of like slower research process, right? How do we kind of, that that's a challenge, and also like a really um, a productive way to engage or to um, think more creatively right, about how to how to do research in these times. Right? It's like what you're doing right now, Scott. You know, um, like collaborating and 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 getting stories.
0: I was several weeks into this before I realized I was actually making a historical record. I'm a historian. <laughs> Uh, the point being, I think sometimes we just shift into doing certain practices without even examining them. Yeah. Um, Malka, I want to just, I guess we're up on time, but I want to ask you mm-hmm. how you, um, Vivian was sharing how this moment, her experience might be affecting her own practice. What about you?
2: Well, first, I just want to pick up on something that that Vivian was saying about this this sort of cracking past that, that um the sort of a narrative that people have already composed in their mind, and I think that there's what what I found doing my research around disasters was that trauma trauma really makes that a, a different prospect because when people are reciting something of, that was traumatic, it's it's even more locked. I think in that way that they tell it to themselves. Um, I just I, I remember doing my research. Um, on disasters where I was actually really trying hard to avoid trauma but it, you know people would start to talk in a certain way and I would know they've gone into that recitation which is which is the the trauma that they've recited to themselves even if to no one else over and over again and I don't know I think that that's also something that's important to to notice in ourselves um as we're going through this uh, and for myself um well, as I said, I've, I've found myself being very productive on fiction. <laughs> on the other hand, I actually have commissions to write stuff about the current moment in nonfiction, and mm-hmm. I find that really, really difficult right now. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, we won't tell your editors. Don't worry. It's fine. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Hi, editors. Uh, sorry it's late. Um, but it is, you know, I'm finding it really, really challenging, um, partly because it is moving so fast. And so it's it's <laughs> it really feels like sort of stepping off that plank to say something about it uh, in a you know in a very public for consumption way, um, and partly because of the trauma, I think it's just it's just a very difficult moment to to want to opine on or analyze. Um, but that said, I do think that there are a lot of really interesting opportunities um, for how we can. You know, one of the things that I think is valuable about uh, science fiction particularly or speculative fiction more broadly even is the way it gives us a moment outside of the normal to think about other potential normals, right? And this is also a moment that is outside of our normal and that is horrifying and frightening and difficult Um, but it is also always an opportunity for us to think about what we can do differently and hopefully better in the future.
0: I wanna remind everyone that you've been listening to COVID calls today. Tomorrow we're gonna be starting first of two sessions on the class of 2020. So Mm -hmm. tomorrow we'll have the principal, Chris Chris Lehman of the Science Leadership Academy in Philadelphia, as well as I believe a teacher and maybe some students as well. So please join us tomorrow and every weekday at five o'clock Eastern Time for COVID Calls. And I wanna thank my guests today, Malka Older and Vivian Choi. I feel like we almost really just got started. Um, (laughs) We're gonna need a follow up on this one, so great. And I should have also said Malka's uh, new book uh, and other disasters, short stories and poetry in in there as well. I Hope we get a chance to talk about that again. Vivian, Malka, thank you so much for making time to come on COVID Calls today.
2: Thank you, Scott, and thank you, Vivian.
0: Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow.